Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Pioneer Podcast. If you've been listening to the last episode, you know that we did the uh, the mailbag episode. This is going to be more like the normal episode that, of what we would do on the show, but we have a little bit of a twist. Ross and I are uh, a little fancy, I guess, would be the way I would do it for this episode. So when we were getting ready for, you know, uh, we do like a pre-show meeting. We start talking about stuff as Ross uh, takes a taste of his right now. Ross was like, yeah, I'm all ready. I've got all this done, this done, because... Let's be real. Ross has a really long checklist because every audio problem you've ever heard on the show, 99% of the time it's <laughs> Ross's fault because he has something plugged in wrong or not plugged in or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's it's never an actual issue of like, you know, the, the hardware that I'm using. It's I have forgotten to do something I need to do. Yeah. And so I, I developed a very long checklist to make sure all the things are plugged in where they need to be and all my settings are where they need to be. And uh, yeah, so... I added an ep- an element to the checklist for this show, which was uh, pouring myself a glass of wine. Mm-hmm. And so and I, I accomplished it successfully. Yeah. And so when I saw Ross had accomplished successfully, successfully, I could not say that word for some reason. So I've never <laughs> had to speak for a living. I don't know what's going on here. I got very, very jealous. And so uh, cheers, Ross. I also have a glass of wine in my cheers, hands. Cannon. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's 6 p.m. on a Monday. But you know what? We're in that like lawless area of the of the year in between like Christmas and New Year's where like, I mean, I went to work today, but like not all day, you know, just for a few hours, like took care of some stuff, signed up somebody. And like this time of year, it almost feels like there's just no law. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you don't know what day it is. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. You don't know what day it is. You don't know what day of the week it is. Like, can I start drinking at 10 a.m.? And the answer is just yes to all of this. You know, it's like it's a holiday sort of we're drinking at a socially acceptable time for any part of the year. You know, it's 6 p.m. your time at 7 p.m. mine, you know, we're in the heart of dinner time. You know, that's when you have a glass of wine. And, I, and indeed yeah. I had a, a wine with, with my dinner before we recorded. So we're, yeah. we're actually following normal rules, but if we were recording 10 a.m. Yeah, we could still have a glass of wine or I don't know, shots. You can do anything. It doesn't matter. There are, there are just no laws. I was say, we could have white claws. You, you, you... Yeah, I've had, by the way, I tr- I tried that for the first time this year. You were there. It's when we were in Philly. Uh, I think that was my last open. Uh, we were in Philly, and somebody was like, I will buy you a White Claw if, if you try it. So I was like, sure. I took one swig of it and almost spit it out. And it's not because it was bad, because it actually is like, I think the taste of it is actually better than people give it. I just don't like seltz. Yeah. You know, like that it, kind of it's, stuff. It's drinkable. You know, it, it's drinkable. Um, wh- wait, wh- which flavor White Claw did you have, though? Uh, okay. What's the, is it like lime? Well, lime, lime? lime is it's like flavor, a white, yeah. yeah, the white bottle, the white, I mean, they're can. all white cans. The, the lime, the oh, lime has okay. a little, uh, where it says the flavor it's in green. So because it's lime. yeah, that one, yeah. that one, I was going to say, cause it was white and yeah. green. Yeah. Also, this was that night that people were buying a shots at that bar. So like the fact that I can remember the color of this can <laughs> is, is a triumph in and yeah, of itself. Yeah, that was a night. Uh, but the, the lime, lime is the second best flavor in my opinion. We had a we had a we had a, okay, smor- we had a smorgasbord of white claws uh, <laughs> when Todd Anderson moved. Yeah, so they had a, a full fridge of various alcohols that people had brought to their apartment or their brought to their house over the years, and w- we did a clean out their fridge uh, party, which was really just us hanging around, swapping stories and drinking. And uh, there were a lot a lot of white claws, so we had a smorgasbord of flavors. And the, my favorite was grapefruit, which, which is similar to lime, but very citrusy. By far, the most disappointing was black cherry. I thought that was going to be one of the better ones. It was really? easily the worst. It was, it's the only one that I would not drink again. I wonder how I would like either one of them because I'm in my hand right now. I'm holding um, 
I drink like a V8 drink every morning. You know, it's like usually with my breakfast or whatever. And uh, the one that flavored that, that I like the most is like a pomegranate blueberry. So I wonder if I would like that other flavor. But the thing is, I just don't like seltzer, like, you know, like caffeinated water or anything like Hold that. On. So. so I'm the old man, but you're the one that drinks a V8 every morning? Yep, at least one. Okay, I see how that, I see how that works. But I, I'm gonna okay. Every time you give me shit about something like this, I'm just gonna remind you something. Who looks older again? Yeah, but that's just genetics. Is it? <laughs> I mean, like a, a little bit. <laughs> I take pretty good care of myself overall. <laughs> I'm five years a, older than you. A little bit, <laughs> at least partly. Okay, yeah, I'll admit it. Probably. Uh, not. Yeah, you're definitely right. I'm, I'm definitely not um, serious. Um, anyway, hold, hold on. So you're still. In, let me explain that the problem yeah. with the black cherry white claw is that it tastes like cherry Robitussin. So if you, if you yeah, if oh, you remember Robitussin as a child, um, yeah. Oh, I do. It, it, or, or like, maybe not even Robitussin, maybe like Dimetap, which is even worse. Yeah. Oh, I remember that uh, too. No, it, it was really, really bad. But the citrus ones were, were fine. Um, but fortunately, we have wine instead of White Claw. So it's really funny. Um that you bring that up. It's amazing how much like PTSD you can get as a child when some, when something like that happens. Cause I remember as a child, anytime I got medicine, you know, if I had like cough syrup or a robot, that's literally anything. My mom would always get me grape flavored. And so I hated the flavor grape, like more, <laughs> like more than anything, you know, it's funny that I like this pomegranate blueberry thing. Cause it kind of looks and tastes like a grape flavor almost. And I still to this day don't like grape flavored stuff so much because in that back of my mind, when I taste it, like I still say myself, you know, the, you, everyone knows the, the little, the little plastic, you know, I guess yeah, shot the, thing, the, the little that you cup. put the medicine in, the the yeah, the measure, the measuring cup, the little plastic one. I mean, we still have them in the house um, because I'm an adult, and whenever I get, if I ever get sick, I just have a, a bottle of uh, Nyquil, I'll just take like three shots of it, and go pass out for twelve hours, and then I'm usually good. I just do nothing but capsule based medication, and I live with that because I'm just not that. that cough syrup stuff is so gross yeah I just it's, can't do it's, it. it's really bad it's it, oh man but anyway so you're still out of town um if you both had, didn't listen to the mailbag episode you're you're at home with the, the folks and stuff overall i mean you don't have to tell us all about it again but how's christmas been you've been home and stuff it sounds like fun <laughs> no it's been great uh you know i with a, a longer trip that i've taken so far i've gotten to see everyone normally i feel kind of guilty that i go like you know i come home and then I'll like a lot of the days that I'm here, I sort of like wake up and I'm off for the day, seeing people that I haven't seen in a while, uh, just all friends in the area. And I feel bad for, you know, for my family. But now I, like I got to spend, I spent like, you know, two or three solid days straight right during the holidays, just all at home, got some good family time in. And now right at the end, uh, a little bit more, but like over the weekends, I was more out. So I had time to do everything and feel like, you know, I, I gave everyone the time that they deserved. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's been great. It's been a nice to just sort of escape from everything um, after a long year. And now I'm I'm right at the point where I'm itching to get back home and get back into the swing of things, which is a good sign. You want to you want to be on vacation right until that point hits. You don't want to be, you know, too early because then you haven't gotten enough vacation in and you don't want to be in that mode too long because then you're just kind of restless. Uh, and I'm right there. You know, if I if I had flown home today, maybe it would have been ideal. But flying home tomorrow. Is so I, I got to ask you. Um, I find a lot of times, especially when it's a when it's a longer one, I need a vacation from vacation. Like when I need when I get home, I need that like day to decompress and get myself back in the headspace to get everything going. Because like I'm not a fan of you know getting home late on like a Sunday night. I mean, I would do this so much during opens, whatever. And then Monday morning, you wake up and you're like, I gotta go. You know, like I gotta you know. 
nine to five or go hard and stuff. But I almost feel like you need that vacation from vacation sometimes. Yeah. And, and I'm going to kind of get that, you know, I'm flying on New Year's Eve back to Roanoke and I'm going to get there early evening, uh, God willing. <laughs> and, uh, and be able to go out, have a New Year's Eve, and then have New Year's Day where I don't really have to do much. Uh, you know, my, my article's done for the week. Deck lists are set for Versus Live on Thursday. So, you know, all my work is basically done. So I'll have Wednesday to relax, maybe get a little bit of testing in uh, for the yeah, weekend. I'll basically just have Wednesday and Thursday, and then I'm flying out to Columbus Friday morning. I <laughs> Corey, like, got, you know, who is super on top of things, way more than I am. Uh, just booked like all his flights for the first half of the year, like two months ago and kept telling me to do the same. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And he was definitely right. I spent way less money uh, doing it that way. Uh, and, but I wanted to be on like similar flights to him for all the ones that we're flying to, uh, because it's just way better traveling with yeah. someone than without. But he booked all like 6am flights. And I'm just like, what is wrong with you? Just spend the extra $50 and leave at a, a reasonable, reasonable time. time. Yeah. Yeah, like I, you know, that's the kind of thing that you do when you're 22 and you're grinding. It's like, okay, I just have to take the cheapest flight, no matter what time it is, for your five, six in the morning, and I'll deal with it. And, you know, maybe you get less sleep, but it's fine because you're 22. And when you're 31, all I want to do is have everything be as convenient as yeah. possible. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, overall the Christmas break been good for me, you know, did the, the family stuff. I, I mentioned a lot of it on the, on the last show. Um, I think I'm, did, did I mention the breakfast that we made that I, that I, I might've forgotten to uh, tell you that we made chicken and waffles as one of the breakfasts for one of the mornings. Uh, I, I think, um, on the mailbag show, I think there was a question about like things that I might get a craving for as a vegetarian, mm-hmm. like things I miss that I miss mm-hmm. eating. And I brought up cheeseburgers, but what, one of the things that I loved more than anything in the world was chicken and waffles. I didn't eat so, it that often. But- so. Oh my god! So let so me tell you, like, what I did. Like, so we had the family over for breakfast. Everybody got there at, like nine to nine thirty. So we had like a, a breakfast casserole that somebody brought over, like you know the typical you know egg, meat, cheese, you know, etc. But that, that's what we do. Yeah. yeah. The wife and I went and got uh, popcorn chicken. You know, very much like if people don't know what it is, it's kind of like what you get from like Chick Fil A or you know any of the places like that. The little, the little, the little nuggets. You know, and um, so we got that. We got a bunch of Eggos. And we tried to find mini Eggos and we went to three places to find them. Couldn't find them. And I was just like, why don't we just get normal sized Eggos and cut them up? Like we're just stupid, you know, whatever. But because uh, we <laughs> wanted it to be pretty, you know, she was like, I want it to be like, you know, pretty look good. Sure. So, you know, we get a bunch of Eggos. We, uh, you know, we cook both of those things, uh, chop up the Eggos into like, you know, bite sized portions. Because like with with and a quarter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, we took like a toothpick. We put a toothpick through it. Uh, I chopped up some green onion, put green onion in it. And then we had a. Uh, pepper jelly maple syrup that we put on it. And it was wonderful. And then I got this great idea because when the people brought over the casserole, they were like, hey, we meant to put this in there, but we kind of forgot to put it in the casserole and they just have bacon. I was like, give me it. I just cooked the bacon and then like added the bacon to the to the, to the the uh, chicken and waffles as well. It was just, I was just like this. I ate like, f- like six of them or something. Like I just could not stop. It was yeah. amazing. Oh, the chicken and waffles is unbelievably yeah. good. And if you're going to SCG Columbus this weekend, there's a stall in North Market, the Belgian place. I can't remember the name of it, but it's oh, the, Bel- it's great. the Belgian waffle place. Yeah, they do chicken and waffles with the you know Belgian Liège waffle. Uh, it is excellent. Uh, so if you also like chicken and waffles and you're going to Columbus this weekend, you can satisfy that craving. 
Oh yeah, like one of my favorite things there. Um, one of my favorite things at that place was, uh, I had like the best baklava I've like ever had in my life there, and they had like a whole bunch of different flavors and toppings and stuff for it. And I'm gonna say this. I am jealous that you get to play competitive magic this weekend. You know, I'm kind of fiending for it quite a bit because I haven't much in the last couple months, but I'm much more jealous that you get to go to North Market. But then (laughs) I think about the last couple of times I've flown into Columbus at this time of year, and it's been horrendous. I've gotten sick every time, and the weather has been absurd. The one time the weather was okay was the time that I had to, I flew to the open that I was supposed to team with you there, you and Jim Davis, and then didn't play because I got obscenely sick, and I flew home on Saturday or whatever. So, I mean... That open cost me something like $900 and I didn't play in it or something <laughs> like that. But uh, yeah. anyway, oh. uh, more of the Christmas stuff. So I had some some fun over this last week. Uh, there's been some pretty good football uh, that's been going on down here. Uh, I'll go with the, the short of it real quick. Uh, you know, the Saints won another, another game this weekend, finished the season really well. But we ended up not getting a first round bye because of some weird stuff that happened in the other games. I don't know if anybody saw the Seahawks and the 49ers game. The Seahawks were on the one yard line with like, I think they might have had multiple plays with like a couple seconds left and couldn't get it through. Ross, I want you to oh, name. They had, they had first and goal from the one, yeah, and then got a delay game penalty that knocked them right. back. That's right. Um, I want you to name a more iconic duo for me than Pete Carroll on the one yard line. The guy <laughs> cannot get the ball over the end zone when he needs to. They even had beast mode again, and I was like, "Look, man, here's your redemption. It's just like the Super Bowl against the Patriots. Like, don't make this mistake again." And of course, like all this bullshit happens. You know, cost us a first round buy, like whatever. It's happened. I'm not. I, I'm not bitter. Yeah. Um, Green Bay won on a last second field goal too to cost you. That yeah, first that round was buy. the other bullshit. I was like, they're going to somehow lose to like the three and twelve Lions. And oh god, Jake Tilk was there. You know, Magic player Jake Tilk, and he was like tweeting about it. I was like tweeting at him. I was like, please make the Lions win. You know, and he's like, yeah, yeah, you need this first round buy for to get Green Bay out of it. But anyway, uh, the other game that had a little more writing on it was uh, there was the first playoff game or the first playoff games in. Uh, in the college football, but I only really cared about one of them or, you know, a lot more than the other one. And that was the true tigers. Yeah. The, the real tigers that play in death Valley, uh, LSU versus Oklahoma. Uh, did, did you, did you see what happened in the game? I saw a, a stat line that was like 500 passing yards and eight touchdowns or something ridiculous. And I, I am, I was like calculating how many fantasy points that would be just for fun. I'm going to give you a quick rundown. I'm going to give you a quick rundown. So the record for touchdown passes in a playoff game coming into this game was four. Burrow broke that in the first quarter. One of our receivers had four touchdowns. This game, obviously a record. Burrow was responsible for eight touchdowns. We blew them out of the water, but people kind of expected that. You know, it was like probably the, t- the team that was like the least good of the four, you know, they're like, there's three really good teams. And then like, who's going to be the deserving fourth kind of thing. So it's going to be us versus Clemson for the national title here in new Orleans. Um, there's a lot of symmetry there. I was telling Ross about it before the, we, we won a national championship against Clemson in new Orleans. The last time we won the Heisman trophy, the LSU player on the Heisman, the only other time it's like 1961. It's Billy Cannon. And we did it again this year. So history likes to repeat itself. So I'm hoping to have a, that Monday, I'm, I'm letting you know this, Ross. Uh, if, I, I forgot what day of the week the, the game is on. But if we have a if we have a show right right after it and we don't win, I'm going to be inconsolable. It's going to be real bad. Yeah. Are you going to do what the Andersons did and spend ungodly amounts of money on tickets? So I'm thinking about it, right? Because it's literally an hour away. Um, also, there is uh, David Yanni, you know, aka Yanni. I'm sure you've seen him on Twitter. Uh, he streams. He like talks magic and stuff a lot. Super great guy. Love him to death. Uh, he'll be he'll be in Columbus, I'm pretty sure, this weekend. 
um, he's a huge Clemson fan and he and I talk college football a lot. Like we talk that more than we talk magic. And I told him, you know, cause he was like super rooting for this to happen. He wanted, he wanted like us to be able to talk shit to each other. And like, and I told him, I was like, if you get down here, we'll get tickets and you can just stay at my house. I was like, you can, you know, I, like it'll help save you some money. You know, I got a guest room fully furnished. Like, come on, let's have some fun to be honest though. Or I, I would rather watch it on television almost every time. The older I get and the more I'm like super into sports, especially at games like that, that's going to be so loud and so packed. You you miss a lot of stuff and it's harder to watch in person. Like uh, the year the yeah. Saints won the Super Bowl in like 09, I went to most of the home games that year. And I went to every playoff game other than the uh, Super Bowl. And the game where we played against the Vikings when they had Brett Favre, like that, that's, you know, and he yeah, had that weird time, NFC championship game in 09. Yeah. I remember uh, I had front row seats for that literal, like I was row seven, but they didn't tell you that row one and th- one through six is on the field. So I'm like, you know, I have the, I have the gate in front of me or whatever. And we were on like the 20 or something like that. And it was actually like, besides the coolness of it, it was kind of a bad, I couldn't see anything when they're on the other side of the court. I had to watch the, I'm like, Ross can see me right now. I'm like, you know, bending over backward, I had to like, look at the jumbotron to see what was going on, you know? And I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. It's, it's fun to go to these things. And yeah, I want to have to enjoy the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The atmosphere is definitely it. And I'll, I'll, the other thing, I'm not sure I want to be in New Orleans if we win that game. It's going to get rowdy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, getting out of there is going to be tough. Oh, you're not. Your like, car- it's it's going to take six hours. Yeah. And your car might get tipped over in that time. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm going to park somewhere like an, a mile away from the stadium or something like that. That might not even be safe. Let's be real. There's going to be 400,000 people down there trying to go to the game and stuff. But hey, do you want to... Yeah, uh, go ahead. <laughs> I don't know what the public transit is like down there, but like park at the very end of a public transit line and like train in if you can. Well, I don't even know if that's possible if there was a good option because it's going to be so late when the game's over. It's going to be like, you know, like by the time you get out and everything will be like midnight. I don't know what would be running. And like an Uber at that time would probably be like hundreds of dollars. Yeah, $7,000 per mile. Yeah. (laughs) Somehow you're like, you're you're funding someone's uh, college tuition from New Orleans to Baton Rouge. No big deal. (laughs) For them to just sit in traffic for you know, three hours. Yeah, exactly. And can you imagine that if we lose the game and that happens? Like you have to do, you have to pay that ridiculous. Oh my god, I would just it'd be like, hey, just pull over on the side of the bridge. I'll just jump off. You know, it'll be, it'll be fine. But do you want to talk about any magic on the show? I mean, we kind of yeah. kind of got spoiled on the last one, not having to do it. Yeah, I guess. Uh, so not a ton going on because it's still that holiday lull. But uh, we did have a pioneer challenge, uh, which was kind of interesting. You know. The, the metagame had been kind of governed by Azorius control for mm-hmm. the last couple weeks, at least since the recent bans. That deck had, had emerged and it was really good. And so that's been sort of the deck to beat. And the results of this challenge show that, like, seems like the Azorius deck is pretty beatable. There's zero copies in the top eight. There's a couple in the top 16, so it's still around. But a lot of different decks making this top eight. So it's not like there's one deck preying on Azorius. There's several that have been able to do it pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um but a, a very diverse topic, which is nice. And some, some cool innovations on lists that we've seen a little bit of like this, uh, you know, the number one list is uh, possibility storm deck. We've seen a little bit of for a while, but not ever, you know, breaking through. I think this is the first real like, big finish for it. Um, a couple different lists of that deck. There've been sort of straight combo versions that play blue and, you know, use that to like dig for possibility storm. And then the straight uh, gruel lists that have this kind of aggro backup plan. This list was straight gruel. I, I like these lists more mainly because of the acceleration from the mana creatures. Uh, just getting down your you know five mana enchantment as early as possible, I think, is really important. 
Uh, and then uh, four copies of Captain Landry Storm. This is pretty stock at this point in these lists, but a really nice one, again, for accelerating out possibility Storm, but still being, you know, a, a reasonable, aggressive creature to pair with your questing beasts and Lovestruck beasts and Bonecrusher Giants. Um, one thing I'm like, not, I don't know why, but why is there a, a sh- shared summons in this deck? I guess, I guess just to make sure you find one of the adventure creatures. So it's it's an instant. So like it's your only instant. So clearly it's like when you have so you have possibility storm out and you have bone crusher giant right because you want that in your deck anyway. You can stop into shared summons and I guess look for lovestruck beast to find enter the infinite. So but is that like better than the second enter? Because then if you just draw the one enter, you're like kind of kind of beat. Oh no, you just get to shared summons for the for the walking ballista. No, because then you don't know you're, you're going to hit the Borbering most. So hmm. I just don't, I don't know why this is better. Like, I see what it's doing, and maybe it's better than the one enter, but it, it's kind of risky to not play it. But I guess you have this backup plan, uh, like aggro backup plan, in case you draw the one enter. M- maybe I just have, you know, flashbacks to drawing the one of Progenitus all the time in Elves, that I'm scared <laughs> to just play hmm. the one enter. Uh, but I, I guess I see what the shared summons is doing. It's letting you, you know, cast the... You know, combo off with Bone Crusher Giant. Um, All right, so, so I, speak, that makes sense. Speaking of comboing off, why don't you try to explain people at home uh, exactly what the combo is with this card? <laughs> okay, so possibly I'm definitely not. I'm definitely not taking a swing at this. So, yeah, so it's a uh, possibility storm is a ton of text, and basically what it boils down to is anytime you cast a spell, instead of getting that spell, you you reveal cards from the top of your deck until you match it, and you get you know the top card that matches it in type. So if you cast a creature, instead of getting the creature you wanted to cast, you just reveal the top two of the creature and you get that one. And it's for every player, which is uh, important. So that combos really nicely with the adventure cards, which you know are creatures nominally when you're flipping through your deck. But when you cast the adventure side of them, it counts the type as the adventure card. So when you cast Heart's Desire instead of Lovestark Beast with the possibility storm out, you get to reveal cards until you get a sorcery. The only actual sorcery you play is one Enter the Infinite. You draw your deck. You put your one copy of Borborygmos Enraged on the top. You have one Walking Blister to be able to cast for a zero, uh, just in case you don't have the mana to cast something else. And then, uh, you know, set it up so that your Walking Blister for zero instead is Borborygmos. You've drawn your deck, so you have a million, uh, you know, a million lands to pitch, and you just send them all at their face. But the cool part is once you have Possibility Storm out, like, their cards aren't really good. You know, they have to try to, like, play some other instant and hope it hit their disenchant effect or counterspell, uh, uh, something like that. But obviously, like, resolving a five-mana enchantment, not, uh, you know, far from guaranteed. So you just instead have this, like, aggro backup plan, which also, like, when you're, cat- when you're just curving Elvish Mystic into Lovestruck Beast into Questing Beast, you know, that's a, that's a curve that the green aggro decks have been using for the, since the format's beginning to good effect. So you can win games that way. And you can also just force your opponent to react, kill your creatures, and then you just combo them. Uh, yeah. So you get a little bit of false tempo out of it as well. Yeah, not to mention, I mean, if, if they're going to do something like try to bring in a counter spell to stop Possibility Storm or a way to interact with enchantments, I mean, there's four Goblin Rabblemaster in the sideboard and some more like Chandra's Awakened Infernos and stuff like that. You can just take that aspect of the deck out and become a very, very good like green-red aggro deck. And that deck's just good in this format. I mean, we saw it do really, really well at the Invitational you know, in a couple other uh, events as well. So the fact that it kind of reminds me, not to the same extent, but remember like Heartbeat of Spring when like Star Wars Kid did well with it? 
at the yeah. uh, the PT, and it had the completely transformational cyborg. And you know, decklists weren't open back then, so you, people didn't see his decklist until he top eight at the PT. And he had that completely. It was like a pure combo deck game one, and then people would bring in a bunch of stuff to stop it. And he just had like I think it was like eight creatures or something in his sideboard and some other stuff, and they just wouldn't have a removal spell left in their deck, and they would just die to like Vinelesh or Kudzu. Yep, I remember that. And so it, I'm a big fan of being able to sideboard with my deck and change the pace in which the game is going to go into uh, making it to where your opponent's cards are as inefficient or literally unusable as possible. And, and normally that wouldn't be an avenue available to you. You'd have too many pieces to bring out. But because Bone Crusher Giant and Love Start Beast, which are you know nominally combo pieces, are also just good cards on their own, the only cards you have to cut when you're trying to transform are the Possibility Storms, the Shared Summons, the Enter the Infinite, and the Vorborythmus. So it's only a seven-card swap, which is not that hard to do. You know, you've got your four Rabble Masters and then a bevy of other options to bring in. You can still just play this Borborygmas. Let's be real. I'm going to jam this guy on like turn, turn, turn five. It's like a 7-6 Trampler or whatever, right? Yeah, 7-6 yeah, Trampler. Let's go. mana, Tannen. Dude, there's... A, you see how many elves are in this deck and how many Lannery Storms? Like, all I'm saying is turn one elf into turn two Lannery Storm. That is a lot of mana, Ross. Yeah, you also have Chandra. Chandra makes mana. You could definitely hard cast it, but you don't want to be doing that, you know? You, if you want a high impact card, hey, you got. Hey, don't tell me what I want to be doing. You're not my dad. I, I want to do this. Sure. You want to be referencing 15 year old Pro Tours. Yeah, exactly. I'm old. Remember Star, Star Wars Kid or Chris McDaniel? That that Pro Tour top four was 2005. By the way, that's Pro Tour LA that Antoine mm-hmm. Ruel won. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fall, fall of 05. So uh, okay, four, 14 year old. Mm-hmm. I, re- I remember. I remember it very well, actually. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what percentage of our audience remembers that Pro Tour, but it's under 10. Yeah, it's got some name, it's got some blast from the past names. It, like Billy Marino was in that top eight and was like, you know, very had a very famous deck in that one. It was a very, very anyway, we don't need to go down memory lane, but Kenji Samora played Dredgetog. Oh, he was, yeah. yeah, that was the top, the top four of that tournament was Anton Ruel, Billy Moreno, Kenji Samora, and Chris McDaniel. I don't remember five through eight, but I remember one through four. Yeah, that, that that was a very star-studded top eight as well. I think this was during the, like, wasn't it during the height of, like, or the beginning of the height of, like, the Japanese dominance of the Pro Tour as well? Yep. Yeah, that was, like, 05 to 08 was when Japan won, like, four straight player of the years. You know, that, that they just completely dominated competitive magic with Shoti Asaoka and Kenji Smura and uh, uh, Masashi Oiso. Back then, oh, definitely they had a, a great group uh, and Shuhei. Yeah, I think they I think they were the four straight player of the years. Also, speaking of cool decks, I know that you really really liked the second place list from the challenge this week because of a four of it. And I'm looking at the only instant in this main deck. It's got four aspect of Hydra, a card that I know that you're just you know a big fan of. Yeah, I don't understand why I love it so much, but I do. And so I love this deck. It's just straight up, you know, green beatdowns, but it goes big. Three copies of Nykthos is not usually something you see in an aggressive deck, but it lets you, you know, cast multiple creatures in turn, which when you have Sorak the Huntcaller is, you know, uh, important. Let's see, you can sink that in at Aronis, um, or you can just play, you know, play a Galta really early. Uh, and w- when combined with, you know, Surfair and the Henchammer and Aspect of Hydra, uh, this deck, I bet, kills on turn four uh, of huge portion of the time. So you're just straight up each down. So there's no interaction here. You know, there's some removal in the sideboard, but not a lot. I think I'm seeing, I'm seeing just two hunt the hunter. So you, you cannot remove a non green permanent from the battlefield with this deck. So you, you better hope to be doing something more powerful than they did. 
but I, I guess it worked. It, it's very straightforward, but um, this seems to me like a, a deck that was a nice scissors for this kind of game. You know, like the rock wa was Azorius Control, and so there's going to be a lot of decks trying to play like, you know, sticky threats or like, you know, gearing up for this long game uh, and contending with Azorius at least into the mid game. And those decks tend to be pretty bad against decks that are just trying to kill you. Um, because the try to kill you decks usually get held in check by control. Uh, and so, you know, you know, sometimes if they don't have Supreme Verdict, you know, these are control that can get run over. And so it's not like you're cold there and you've got four, like you see four copies of heroic intervention. So clearly like their sideboard is built for control decks along with three shaper sanctuaries and a Kiora uh, behemoth beckoner. So a very heavy anti-control sideboard here. Uh, and then just a plan to beat up on, you know, weirdo, like, you know, like this dredge deck is probably really bad against mono green because it doesn't interact that much either. Uh, and, you know, the green deck's creatures are so big. So uh, definitely a, a nice pick for this kind of metagame. It's the kind of deck that, like, you're going to crash and burn sometimes if you just run into a bunch of Azorius and, like, they verdict you a lot. But if that doesn't happen and you get through the first couple rounds and you start getting into the winner's metagame, uh, you know, you're really well positioned. And this deck is powerful enough to just, you know, run over some decks in the early rounds of a tournament. So it's a, it's a good choice for that kind of position. You know what else I'm a big fan of with this deck? I'm looking at it, and overall, I think this deck's very affordable. Like, you know what I mean? Like, the actual price of the cards. Like, you know, Ronus has, you know, a little bit of price tag. Nykthos, you know, like, Galtas have, like, you know, these cards are more than a couple dollars. But overall, cards like Burning Tramsary, Elvish Mystic, Aspect of Hydra, like, Love Struck Beast. If you go to, like... TCG player, SCG, you can order a ton of this deck for probably like under $50. Besides the, you know, the couple big rares like Nykthos. Uh, Heroic Intervention is randomly like almost a $10 card as well. On um, Goldfish, it's listed as a $16 card. So this deck's a little more expensive than you might think. It's listed at $211 on Goldfish. Oh, I was thinking more like $100, $150 would get you this whole deck. I'm sure if you like really try and get some of the, the lower condition versions, you could probably get this deck for significantly less than that, but... Still, I mean, when you look at some of the other decks, are like two to three times this in this format. It's this definitely more of an affordable option, option, and I'm sure if you looked around it, I, you could probably get it for 150 if you, you know, sh shop some deals. Uh, but yeah, it's really it's heroic intervention and Nykthos and Ronus are the big ticket items. So also, like if you have a couple of those already, you know, that significantly reduces the added investment you need. Although I'm a little surprised. I, I kind of when you said it, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I could see this deck being pretty cheap, but. Nick Nickthos Todd Anderson has done too much work with that card, I guess. Well, maybe it gets reprinted at Theros Beyond Death. I'm almost certain that card's getting reprinted. By the way, I think this would be like one of the last big uh, spoilers. They're gonna be like, "Oh, look at this cool reprint!" Because like, it just makes sense for it to a be in the format and b that's why we haven't had it uh, get banned out of Pioneer. Because there's a lot of people saying that you know um, the, the other cards died for Nickthos's sins, kind of thing. So definitely think that card. Would have been on the chopping block earlier if it wasn't getting reprinted. Now, the third place deck in this uh, in this uh, tournament is a deck that has a special place in your heart, even though we haven't seen it do as much in Pioneer as we thought it would. But it's got a special change to it, a specific change that people have been making. And this is Blue-Red Arclight Phoenix coming in at third place. You know, we hadn't seen this really do much lately, but we've seen it kind of pop up uh, again lately. And the big change was... Ross, you don't see thing in the ice in this deck anymore. Yeah, and uh, that's no surprise to me. I I thought from the beginning of Pioneer, you know, when, when I brewed an Is It Phoenix deck for like the first week of the format before we had any results, 
for versus live, I did not include thing in the ice. I just didn't think you could enable a card. People tried a little bit harder and they eventually figured out ways to make it better. Uh, and I think fiery temper plus lightning axe was a big, you know, draw to it just to give you more one mana spells. Uh, but once the metagame evolved, we saw all this black removal, you know, a lot of fatal pushes, a lot of abrupt decays, uh, you know, things that deal with Awoken Horror or Thing in the Ice efficiently. Uh, and that was a big, you know, loss to, to the deck as well. Because when you when you play Thing in the Ice, like you're in on that card. You need it to live as a key part of the deck. It was true in, you know, Modern and it was true in Pioneer. And now they've replaced it with Young Pyromancer card that is much better against most spot removal you know things like magma spray or wild slash obviously the pyromancer is worse but even if you're able to get you know one or two tokens out of it that's not a bad deal in a deck that can grind pretty effectively with arclight phoenix and treasure cruise uh charter course things like that so um i'm personally intrigued by the switch i know there was a lot of talk on twitter this past week with people that did not like it uh, I saw a lot of really negative reactions to the rising young Pyromancer. I, I think if you look at the way the metagame had been shaping up the last couple of weeks with a lot of control decks, uh, especially the switch to young Pyromancer makes a lot of sense. And I don't really understand like the significant hate towards it. I think it's a perfectly reasonable card in the deck, you know, from a theoretical perspective. Uh, so it's not like a, you know, it's not like this card is a horrible fit that you're playing only because it's well positioned. It's actually a, a solid fit, much like thing in the ice maybe a little worse in a vacuum, but certainly better against the decks people are playing. No, absolutely. And you know me, I'm a big, big fan of Young Pyromancer. I've uh, used it quite a bit in Legacy out of like the Grixis Delver decks. And it was always one of my favorite threats in any of the matchups where you played against A, removal spells or sweepers of any kind. So in that format, you're looking at something like, you know, Miracles. And I always talked about like, they had a problem just beating a Young Pyromancer because they never wanted to use like a sweeper against a two mana card you know, one of their premier like ways to kill things, but you eventually made them have to do it. But the thing is, is like Young Pyramids is so good because it allows you to keep playing your game, right? You can still keep call, uh, casting Chart of Course, Strategic Planning, Treasure Cruise, cards like that, digging through your deck to find exactly what you need. And it's rewarding you for playing Magic. Like you're getting a 1-1 every single time you're doing this. So your initial investment for threats is only one card, right? And if you're getting back Phoenixes while you're doing this, that's just, you know, extra extra good stuff that's going on there. So I love it. Also, have you noticed this list doesn't have Fiery Temper in it? Yeah, um, th that's sort of the other change, I think. Uh, and one of, another reason that Thing in the Ice got worse is that I don't think Fiery Temper was particularly good in the, the format. It was, you know, it's awkward against Teferi because you can't madness it against uh, Baby Teferi. It is, you know, there weren't a lot of things that you really needed the third damage to kill. There's a lot of, you know, cheap creatures that you kill with Wild Slash, and then there's a lot of these, like, four toughness green creatures. So Fiery Temper was sort of caught in the middle, and by cutting it, they were able to find room for more copies of Strategic Planning, which not only helped you dig for Arclight Phoenixes, but also helped fill your graveyard for Treasure Cruise. You know, when I played the initial versions of Visit Phoenix, I also noticed that, like, I was struggling to cast Treasure Cruise for a reasonable number which is like three or less, and I really, really want two or less. Three is sort of the, okay, if I have to do this sometimes, that's fine. But I want to be casting it for two and one. And I was casting for three or four a lot, and that just you know isn't tenable in a format as fast as Pioneer. Strategic planning really helps you out in that regard, fills your graveyard, make sure that you're casting your treasure cruises for one and two mana consistently, uh, but you needed to find space for it, and Fiery Temper was sort of the thing that got cut. 
And now, you know, instead you get Young Pyromancer, plan strategic planning, more cantrips, which Young Pyromancer appreciates so that you keep the gas flowing. And then you have cheap treasure cruises to keep the gas flowing and have these, you know, really explosive, maybe turn fours. So like, say you go like, you know, turn one cantrip, turn two Young Pyromancer, turn three, you're like removal spell plus strategic planning. And then turn four, you get to treasure cruise and then probably play one or two more spells after that. Uh, and you've created a battlefield of several one ones or forced removal spell. Probably found an Arclight Phoenix to recur, uh, and you're you're in good shape. So I really really like strategic planning in this deck, and I like definitely like going up to four. Yeah, and so like you can see that that was a conscious effort. They wanted to be able to fill their graveyard more. If you look in the sideboard, you actually see a copy of Dig Through Time. So any of the matchups that go along, like I'm looking at the mirror or any of like the control matchups, you just believe like the fifth treasure cruise, pretty much. You know, you're trying to find a very specific card in the mirror or in, you know, in any of the matchups where you want to bring in Dig Through Time. And this helps you find, you know, your Negate or your Mystical Disputes or your Fry or something like that that's important in the matchup. So love the change to four strategic plannings like you were saying. It's pretty cool. Um, I actually like the sideboard a lot. Yeah, you have a couple of Planeswalkers in here with like Sahili and Narset, depending on what's going on. Also, another card that I've been a big fan of since the format started that we haven't seen a ton of, and that's Mizium Mortars. I think this card has been a little bit criminally underplayed at times and can be very, very good in a lot of spots. Like, you know, in the mirror, depending on how many crackling drakes there are, it could be a card that you might want, but it also cleans up like a board that's been built up by young Pyromancer while still being a good like one for one early in a game for cheap too. Yeah, I can clean up things like Steel Leaf Champion and Questing Beast, which are seeing play. I, I like Museum Mortars quite a bit too. I think it's more of a sideboard card right now because of the prevalence of Azorius Control. But right. a very good sideboard card because in the matchups where it's good, it is excellent because it's both good early, but then this really powerful late game card, which is something that this deck actually really values that kind of versatility. You know, it's a 20 land deck, right? You know, so mm. you want a lot of cheap spells. You're also a young Pyromancer or Clay Phoenix deck. So you do want this density of cheap spells. But often, you know, building your deck in that way leaves you with a dearth of really powerful effects when you go long. Obviously, the Delve cards like Treasure Cruise really help that because then you just out-volume out your opponent. But a card like Mizium Mortars that is an effective cheap spell in the early game, but then late game when you're like, well, I don't need a, a bunch of spells, I just need something really good, is the six-mana Plague Wind, uh, you know, is super, super helpful. And, you know, even with only two copies, you have so much velocity in this deck that you're going to be able to find it. Yeah, absolutely. Love this. Now, the fourth place deck from this... Um, have we ever got an official name for this deck? It's like the No Dredge Dredge deck. Yeah, so, so MTG Goldfish lists it as Dredgeless Dredge. And I actually okay. wrote about Graveyard Decks in Pioneer a couple weeks ago. And rather than ask uh, Cedric, because Cedric is pretty picky with, when it comes to deck names, I just knew that if I tried to pass it off with that same name, like, you know, it just wouldn't fly. So I just gave it the name Sulti Dredge. Uh, which he didn't say anything about and just went up that way. So I've just taken to calling it Sultai Dredge, and I assume that's what SCG will be calling it. But I, I do hear it called Dredgeless Dredge a lot, which I think is just a heinous name. Yeah, like even yeah. Sultai Dredge is not great, but I think it's better than Self Mill. I think I think you know if somebody doesn't understand the concept of a Self Mill deck, because you know if somebody doesn't know Dredge, obviously they're going to think, oh, Mill, like I want to mill them because if I run out, of, if they run out of cards, I win. So, you know, the idea of self-mill sort of comes along with the concept of dredge, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I don't think calling it Sultai Dredge is any less or any more esoteric than calling it Sultai Self-Mill, uh, even if it might be a little bit more, you know, appropriate. 
And plus, like the overlap with modern, you know, Narcomeva, Price, Amalgam are in the, and Creeping Chill, or, and sometimes Stitcher Supplier are in the modern, you know, dredge decks. So there's even overlap in cards, even if there's no cards with the actual keyword dredge. So, yeah. Uh, and in looking at this one, um, you know, I'll be honest, I don't super pay attention to the list of this. They all kind of look the same to me. You know, I don't, I don't notice sometimes there's something new, but I, I hadn't seen Decimator of Provinces in this list too much. If, if at all. And you see two in this list. Is this new for you as well? Uh, so we, I've seen them pop up in the last week or so um, you, as a one or two of. N- note that this is Sodek, by the way. I don't know if you saw the, the name. So Wait, that's the, the Dredge, Dredge Master, right? This is the Dredge Master, yes. So okay. uh, Decimator has popped up in, in other li- other lists as well, not just his, in the last week or two. Um, obviously, like really easy to cast if you have a Gourmet Angler. Uh, so normally it's a Merge 9 via six green, green, green. So if you sack Angler, it'll just be green, green, green. Uh, and even with Haunted Dead, like you can cast it for five. That's pretty doable. Uh, even in a 20 land deck, you know, you have Grizzly Salvage and Seder Wayfinder to get more lands. And it, I think it's a really nice card for this deck because, you know, you can dig with it for it with Gather and Salvage, right? Uh, so you're, you're going to find it pretty often. And oftentimes, one of the more underrated ways to beat Dredge-style decks uh, is to just make a, a battlefield of big yeah, come up the board. Yeah. Yeah. And, and trump them on the battlefield. You know, they're very good at playing through removal because their creatures keep coming back uh, and, and they're generating card advantage. And, uh, you know, they're pretty good at racing now because of creeping chill. But if you just play defense with big creatures, especially in pioneer where they don't have conflagrate, you know, sometimes they can just be like, well, I have a bunch of three threes and three twos and one ones. And, you know, you have two five fives. And you just sit there for a while and eventually, you know, they are, they just sort of run out of stuff to do because they don't really have this good way to go over the top. Uh, initially, these lists were playing like two to three copies of Driven to Despair as a way to break up those board stalls. Um, but now we see a split between Driven to Despair and Decimator. And I really, really like that split um, because Decimator, you know, it's sort of like our Crater Hoof Behemoth, right? I mean, not quite mm-hmm. as powerful, but... It sets up really big swings, which not only help you break through those bigger creatures, it also just helps you race combo decks. Because you don't really have disruption in these decks. You're built, you want your opponent to be trying to interact with you. So the decks that aren't trying to interact with you and you're just going over the top are things that you struggle with. And Decimator is a way to, you know, re-trump them and go over the top of them. Uh, so definitely a, a strong addition here. And I think will, you know, uh, become stock if it hasn't already. Yeah, I, I love the idea because almost every time that I ever beat any kind of quote-unquote dredge variant, a deck like this, it's because I have a battlefield. You know, like I, I like playing decks of Young Pyromancer and Gurmag Angler in them. And if you just make like four or five tokens but a Gurmag in play, they usually can't kill you before you kill them with something because you usually can go over the top of them, like you said, once they've kind of spun their wheels a couple times. So definitely like this move to be able to win in those kind of spots or get ahead in the spots where it's traditionally had a weak spot. So I like it. You know the deck that uh, you wouldn't suspect, but I often lost to playing Modern Dredge. Uh, What's that? Not a good Modern deck, but the the Gruel Land Destruction deck. So like the LD would sometimes just screw you because like the Dredge you often keep just two land hands and hope to loam, and if they just keep you off two mana, like you stop being able to do anything and you're just slow dredging, and then they just cast Inferno Titan on like turn three or four some games, and you're like, well. Yeah. I don't know what to do against that. So, like, the, can you even I, beat a Thrun? Like, I don't even know if you could beat Thrun. Yeah, like Thrun, Thrun could play defense, Hot Master of the Fells, any of those like weirdo cards. Like, 
and you know, I would have to kill their mana creatures like on site because they were just so so uh, threatening. Like that matchup was actually very scary. And sometimes they often had graveyard hate in their sideboard too that you had to worry about. They would have like a couple relics or cages or something, and like I would frequently lose even if they didn't draw those cards because their deck was just like they just trumped what I did. They didn't care about killing my stuff, you know. So that, yeah, that, that, I, I like you know a way to be able to you know beat people who are just trying to go over the top of you. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the fifth place deck, another deck that's going to have a special place in your heart. We see blue, red, and soul, whatever you want to call it, you know, the scissors deck. And I thought this deck was dead, Ross. You know, Smuggler's Copter getting banned, but we see a fifth place finish for it here. Uh, what, what were the changes like? What did they do to add some extra power to the deck now that they lost that powerful artifact? Yeah, it's pretty stock uh, compared to the list that we saw pre-copter ban. Basically, they took the four copters and added two copies of the Royal Scions and two Emery Lurker Block. Both of these cards are, you know, powerful effects that, at least with the case of Emery, synergize with the deck and help you play a little bit of a longer game, prevent you from flooding, um, and just give you a little bit more oomph in the matchups where, you know, they're able to deal with your and soul effects, and then you're left with a pile of one ones for one and you need a little help. So that's really what Smuggler's Copter did. Um, and so re- replacing those with, with a comparable effect makes sense. Now, obviously not as good as Smuggler's Copter, but this was still a very powerful deck. And like, you know, if people are not prepared to be dealing with and sold things, then you're in pretty good shape. And that notably, like the Copter ban has brought a decrease in the amount of Mono Black, which I think was a really bad matchup for this deck because they, you know, could race you, they could play a little bit into defense sometimes, and they just had a really good removal for your soul cards. Um, and now, the, you know, the mono black decks are still around, but certainly in much lower numbers. So while the, you know, this deck did lose in uh, Smuggler's Copter, it at least, you know, uh, mitigated that loss by having one of its predators uh, go in decline. So, you know, a pretty simple change. They basically just swapped out Copter for comparable cards, but uh, th- this is the kind of deck that like it's going to get better if people aren't prepared for it, right? You know, it, you know, if you don't see a lot of removal for in soul cards, this is a deck that's going to win a lot of matches. I don't see a lot of removal spells in these top eight decks with you know Azorius down, uh, Azorius being suppressed. You know, the, the, generally decks that are good against control don't main deck a lot of removal because the removal is bad against control decks, and so that's going to help these sort of all in aggro decks as well. Uh, similar to like the mono green deck, you know, that we saw in second place. That's an all-in aggro deck. This is the uh, same kind of thing. So a a good scissors for the metagame in Is It Scissors. <laughs> I heard you make the uh, the comment earlier about this is a good scissors. Like, Ross, we're not to that deck yet. Just, <laughs> just chill out. Uh, if we move on to the sixth place list, we're kind of continuing the theme of just a very diverse top eight here through this Pioneer Challenge. And it's a deck that you may have heard me mention a couple weeks ago is a deck that could be pretty important going forward in the new meta, especially if like blue white control got really good, which a lot of people thought that was like base level, you know, level zero. This is the best deck is Azorius control. And the deck we're talking about here is spirits. And we've seen, you know, blue white spirits quite a bit, but this one's got the green splash. We got four collected company in the deck here, along with like a Dromoka's command and a couple other random one ofs. Like there's an inoffensive Kentry spirit in here. There's a bygone Bishop, the Dromoka's command, like I mentioned, unbreakable formation and unsubstantiate. Or in this deck, but other than that, you're looking at a pretty stock list with you know four collected company and then just all the hits 
Supreme Phantom, Spell Queller, you know, uh, Mausoleum Wanderer, the, the cards that you're expecting to see. You know, the, the one ofs are strange to me because none of them really stand out except maybe Dromoka's Command, definitely like a pretty reasonable card. Um, Unbreakable Formation seems okay. You know, it, it's kind of a cool card that you can like hold up when you're, you know, in a company deck and also with Spell Queller. So, like, you know, they think you're holding these other flash threats. So, like, Anytime you have a deck with a lot of instants, the more diverse instants you have, the harder it is to play against. So I think the one of Unbreakable Formation is also kind of cool. The Anafenza, the Bygone Bishop, and the Unsubstantiate seem kind of weak to me, especially the Unsubstantiate. The Bygone Bishop is like, you know, it's a spirit at a reasonable rate, generates some card advantage. Anafenza generates some, you know, battlefield advantage um, as while being a spirit at a reasonable rate. A little hard on the mana. Uh, so like, I can see those. This unsubstantiate seems like, come on, come on, buddy. You might just be trying something out or something, yeah, but I can kind of agree with you. It does seem a little out of place. It's got a more powerful card. Nah, I'm a big fan of this deck that does get to play what has probably been the most powerful card in Pioneer since its inception, Breeding Pool, but <laughs> I I would be interested in trying this deck out as just blue-white for a while at first. I think that's like where I would start because I, I'm not sure how I feel with the mana being stretched because you're like, in essence, a three-color deck of cards like Unclaimed Territory in your list. But maybe the mana is just fine. You know, you have a lot of dual lands, you have Botanical Sanctum, a bunch of check lands and stuff. So maybe maybe the mana is just good and Collective Company is just so powerful that you actually want to play it. I'm seeing 11 green sources, which is, that's like the bare minimum. Yeah. That's that's the thing I'm a little worried about is like having green mana on turf works. Like, you don't get Noble Hierarch is the big thing, right? And that was when you looked at this deck in modern and like, yeah, you know, we don't get to directly port decks over, but when you looked at it in modern, this one's about as close as you can get to like some direct ports and not having uh noble hierarchy is a, a big loss for this deck, I think. So I'm not sure about the green, but I would maybe that card, maybe Club the company is just so powerful that it's worth it. I mean, the big draw to Azorius for me would be mutable. I think that two colors, you can afford to play mutable. Maybe you raise your land count to 24 as a result. I, I think that would be huge for the deck. Really, really good card. Um, so th- that's... I, and honestly, like, Collected Company hasn't been that great in Pioneer. If you get if you play Azorius, like, you play Mutavolt, maybe you play, like, Reflector Mage, um, because this, this list actually does not have Reflector Mage in it, um, which is a little awkward. Maybe you play things like Tithe Taker that, like, produce spirits when they die... And also, like, incentivizes them to play on the, on their own turn, which is what you want. Um, because it, it's not like you... The sack only has one spirit lord. So it's not as, you know, all in on, you know, needing a million spirits. I guess you have Neville Gas Herald and Rattle Chains as well as tribal synergies. But I, I think you just get to play around a little bit more being Azorius. Maybe you can play Teferi in your main deck, which would be great. Um, I guess you could, you could fit those cards in this list too, but... Uh, I agree. The, the mana is a little sketchy to me. I also don't even think Unclaimed Territory is very good, right? Like, you, you don't have green mana for creatures. The only green creature in the deck is one Knight of Autumn in the sideboard. So, like, yeah, Unclaimed it Territory seem is an Azorius dual land that doesn't cast your, like, spell pierces and stuff. Yeah, not not super keen and sold on it. I don't know. Maybe I need to play with the deck a little bit and see if, like, maybe we're just missing something. But those, those are my initial reactions, for sure. I, I like raising the land count if it helps your mana, because you also have Spectral Sailor to sink mana into. So yeah, for sure. Which the modern decks usually don't play, at least in high numbers. I bet the Azorius mm-hmm. list do, but Bant, because of Noble Hierarch, probably doesn't play it in modern. 
Yeah, I've seen some of the blue-white versions in Pioneer. They get to play Curious Obsession, too, if you want to play with that card. And that's a card that can run away with the game by itself. And, you know, I'm a big fan of that card. I loved Mono Blue and Standard when that was a thing. So a uh, big fan of maybe giving, giving that version a try. Now, if we move on to the 7th and 8th place list, we have our first kind of, uh, uh, you know, the same deck finishing in the top 8. It's another deck that I talked about a few weeks ago that I liked. I played this in an event um, now a couple of months ago, but... This is just mono green Tron is like kind of what I call it. And like, yeah, you don't have the Tron lands, but this has that kind of feel to it. Have you gotten to, have you run into one of these decks yet? Cause they're actually pretty dang good. Yeah. I've seen quite a bit of this deck and we saw it a little bit before the field of the dead ban because of these lists usually play our promise and like two field of the dead. Right. And mm-hmm. that was a big end game for them. And since the ban, they've adjusted, you know, that they can't play fields. Our isn't that great. And they're instead playing Cavalier of Thorns, which, uh, you know, gives them a little bit more of an immediate impact on the battlefield uh, with the the body, uh, you know, adjust the mana base a little bit to help, you know, pay for that. They're up to four Castle Garenbrig, which makes a lot of sense. So, you know, this is a deck that's really taking advantage of Castle, um, really taking advantage of uh, the other two mana land, it's a shrine of the Forsaken Gods, so I just sort of call it Eldrazi Ramp because it, it reminds me of that old standard deck that uh, Jim Davis used to win the, the second player's championship. Uh, it's sort of the, the pioneer version of that in my eyes. And yeah, it's been one of the you know most successful, most you know, played decks in the metagame post-ban because you know all those Field of the Dead ramp decks, they're obviously like very strong, but this is the one that survived the ban. It was least reliant on field. And so they, they just made some adjustments. You know, Ugin is still super powerful. Ulamog super powerful. Walking Ballista, really great versatile threat. All of its ramp elements are still around. So it's definitely the one that was most able to, you know, withstand that ban. And we see that that it did. This is just this is just a tier one archetype in the, in the format. Yeah. And something that kind of surprises me in here is the amount of untapped green sources for turn one. In one of the lists, we're looking at nine. And the other one, we're looking at 11. But you have a lot of creatures that you want to play on turn one if possible. Like you see four... Uh, Grazer and four Gilded Goose in one of the lists. Now, uh, you don't have any use for the food other than like making more food, which is a thing you can do because like I do find that in this deck sometimes you just have so much extra mana you don't have anything to do with that that is fine. You know, make a make a food, use a food. That, that's a thing you can do. And the other one you're looking at a lot of you know one drops with Grazers, Mystics, and Land War Elves. So you're looking at eight one drops in both of them. But in one you're looking at nine untapped sources, and one of the other ones you're looking at eleven untapped sources because there's a lot of colorless lands in this deck. Like you're seeing, you know, Blast Zone, Radiant Fountain, Sanctum of Ugin for Shrine of the Forsaken Gods. And I never really had a problem playing the deck with that kind of thing, but I do want as many untapped green sources as I can get turn one because, as you know, Castle Garenberg doesn't do that. So th- that is something that can, that can come into because, I mean, the deck wants to play a card on turn one that helps it generate more mana so it can miss this pilgrimage on turn two. Like that is what you're looking to do with this deck. And, um, I do mulligan quite aggressively with this deck. It's kind of like playing Tron in Modern. It's another kind of um, duality the decks have, and like you can kind of like correlate those skills if you play them together. This deck can win very easily on five and six cards, so you should be mulliganing pretty aggressively with seven card hands if they're kind of iffy or not good enough. I completely agree. This is a, you know every ramp deck like a stumble out of a ramp deck is so huge. You know every turn yeah, you're just dead, and because you like your threats are so powerful. You, you can win on fewer amounts of cards. You also get a little card advantage out of Mrs. Pilgrimage. So in this deck specifically, uh, that card helps you mulligan a little bit. And 
Uh, I very much agree with your point on wanting more green sources. I would certainly favor the eighth place list over the seventh for that reason. Um, not only like, you know, do you just want a one drop on turn one because, you know, that, that's just curving out naturally. If you look at the deck's curve overall, it curves one, three, five. You know, it has the, the eight one-man accelerants, whether you're supplementing your grazers with elves or beasts, doesn't matter. Each list has eight. But then they're, they're you know, supplementing that with four Elvish Rejuvenator, four Nissus Pilgrimage. So you want to be playing one drop into three drop, and then you've got your Cavalier of Thorns at five mana, or if you find a castle, that gets you to six mana on, you know, when you normally would have five, and you can play Oblivion Sower, three, three, you know, Walking Ballista, Olvenwald Hydra, that, that's in all of these lists. I see some lists still play Golos and play their one, you know, Cataract or whatever. Uh, yeah, Cascading Cataract. Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, I think having a few more green sources makes a lot of sense. You know, the eighth place list, you know, cuts a Radiant Mountain. Do you need four of them? You know, uh, Sanctum Moog and like, you don't need a million of them. You'll, you'll find them with your uh, with your other cards. Making sure that you can just cast your cards on time is so important. Um, not, not a lot on, like, to say about this deck. This is just a deck that if you're not, you know, thinking about and keeping in the forefront when you're preparing for Pioneer tournaments, like you're doing something wrong or like your local metagame is weird because this deck is, uh, it's around a lot. You play it frequently in leagues and it definitely shows up in bigger tournaments like this being the only deck to have multiples in the top eight. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm just a big fan of this kind of strategy. Anyone who knows me as a Magic player knows I like this kind of strategy because the thing is, is like, you just have so many good matchups. You know what I mean? Like, your mid-range and control matchups of this deck are just very, very, very good. And even looking at this top eight, you're not seeing a ton of, like, all-in aggro decks. And those are the decks that can really give you a fit. Like, when I was losing with this deck, I was losing to, like, turn two Rabble Master. Because you just do not answer it correctly in this deck. Like, the only removal main is Walking Ballista, and you cannot generate enough mana to, to slow that down. And you see a concession to it in the sideboards. They have, like, four Spatial Contortions. And, like, that's something that can do enough, like, to, to help that matchup up. But it's not good. Those matchups are not good for you. They're actively bad. And so, but I do think these decks are very, very good and will make up more of the metagame going forward as well. So I really like these. Were there any decks in the, like, other than the top eight that you, like, wanted to talk about? Is there anything else that you liked out of the, the other ones? Because, like, we still saw, you know, a good bit of decks. Like, if you look down the 11th, 10th place, you see your first Azorius Control. That one's pretty stock. I don't see anything too, like standout-ish from it from what we've seen i think the biggest point from this was like no azorius control deck top aided but it looks like this one came within you know one game of getting there yeah i mean there's nothing super you know out there in the the rest of the list you see a good bit of this mid-range red deck that uh todd anderson's been playing quite a bit of calling it chunky what, what, what is it called chunky, chunky red or chunky something? red with an o chunky and uh, chunky okay. yeah and um these lists are starting to come together. They, they're doing pretty well. You know, uh, Rekindling Phoenix is a card that I think you remarked as being really well positioned after the Oko ban. Uh, and so it's using Rekindling Phoenix quite well. I know um, Todd had actually, you know, cut Chain Whirler to fit Mutavault in the deck. The lists that we're seeing in this challenge are actually just going up on lands. So they're playing 26 with four Mutavault, and that gives them 22 red sources, which is a good number for Chain Whirler. Um, so they're able to play both. And it, I mean, 26 lands sounds like a lot, but the curve of the deck is pretty high. You have a lot of built-in card advantage with Bone Cursor Giant, Chandra Torch of Defiance, Rekindling Phoenix, and the deck has just a lot of utility lands. There's four Immutable, four Ram and Everins, two Castle Embereth. So 10 utility lands in the mana base, uh, which is excellent. So uh, I actually like having a higher land count here, uh, and I, I think this deck is quite good. Um, you know, 
it didn't crack into the top eight, but there's several in the top 16. We're also seeing sort of a, a Rakdos build of the deck, kind of chonky Rakdos, um, playing like Scrappy Scrounger instead of Kari Zev and getting a little bit you know, of an upgrade on their removal. They're a little more artifact heavy. They usually have Bomet Courier, maybe Hardikir in. Um, I don't really see a lot of unlicensed disintegration in those decks. Not sure why, but that's another option if you think it's a, you know, a well-positioned card. But those kind of mid-range red decks are actually doing quite well, as opposed to sort of like Golgari-based mid-range decks that we might have expected. And I, I think they're they're a little bit better at just applying pressure, uh, which, which is pretty important. So that that clock is really nice, and it's not like they're hurting for card advantage. You know, Dig Through Time gets a lot of hoopla, but like Chandra and Glorybringer and Bone Crusher Giant are really powerful cards. We've been talking about Glorybringer for you know a month and a half, and and it just continues to be really, really good in this, uh, in pioneer. And that, that does not seem to be stopping. So those kind of mid range red decks are definitely something you can be doing. You see a little bit of the model black aggro deck, that decks around a little bit of Azorius control. So those three decks are definitely things that you still need to keep in mind, but otherwise this top eight is pretty representative, you know, and, and nice and diverse. We don't actually, the one thing I'll say we're, we're kind of missing still is, is the combo decks. I see a you saying, the, the Lotus Field deck, it gets a lot of press, but I just don't see results. So uh, I think that deck's probably a bit overrated. I guess we did see Possibility Storm win the tournament. Um, but that's in a very, you know, aggro combo shell. Still don't see any sort of, um, you know, Jeskai Ascendancy, things like that. So combo deck's not really around, but we got, you know, we got Control, we got Ramp, we got Aggro, we have Midrange, we have, you know, sort of engine decks like uh like is it phoenix we got you know aggro combo so metagame looks really cool nothing really jumps out at me as cards that are going to be on the chopping block for the next ban announcement which will come next monday so i think we're going to see this metagame continue uh, and continue to evolve uh, and now we're actually going to get for the first time some new cards added to the format yeah i'm excited about that we can talk about that just one second there's one more i, I gotta i gotta say that was a really good segue, and I'm just going to run it. I'm really sorry, because we were supposed to go into the, the new uh, spoiled cards that we could think are going to be in Pioneer. But I don't know if you've seen this deck that Aspiring Spike has been tweeting with, uh, tweeting, uh, uh, streaming with quite a bit lately, and a couple other people picked it up. But have you seen the Sultai uh, Wilderness Reclamation deck yeah, that they've been it's playing? Like, like Fair Sultai Reclamation. It's got like um, uh, Scarab God and Frilled Mystic and dig through time yeah. and like uh growth spiral and some counter spells i'm actually a pretty big fan of it and it looks really really cool i'd have to play with it a lot because like i feel that four reclamation is a lot in main deck and three might be the correct number because like it is not good in multiples in the deck most of the time but i'm not sure and then like i've seen somewhere they have like extra removal main the deck's got like you know sensor and a couple other things that i'm not i'm, I'm a little unsure of but like i think the deck's very good i think it's very powerful it kind of fits in the vein of like the blue red uh, emerge deck where you're not doing a whole lot in the first couple turns, right? Like you're doing something on, you're never doing anything on one, but you're probably doing something on two and three that sets up very powerful turns four, five, and six, which we've seen can be very good in this format. I just kind of wanted to mention this deck. If you've, if you've got Twitter, uh, it's at aspiring spike. He's got the list posted a lot. Um, there's been, uh, I was going to say, our Twitter retweeted, I'm sorry, the, the Cast Pioneer tweet, Twitter retweeted somebody that 5-0'd with it. Uh, it was like Titans fan 920 or something like that. He 5-0'd with it and posted a list. Uh, really cool deck. I want to play with it a lot. It's got my favorite cards in the format to play together, Dig Through Time and Torrential Gear Hulk. I'm a big Scarab God fan. Um, 
the, the hardest part is finding copies <laughs> of that card because it's expensive and no one has them. They're like a, they're like a twenty or something ball a piece or whatever, maybe twenty five. And like just no one has that card sitting around. It's really annoying. I should have bought them at the end of that standard format when they weren't worth anything, but we didn't know this was going to happen. But that's like the last deck I kind of wanted to just mention for a minute. But if I were playing a lot of uh, Pioneer right now, which I've been super busy at work, so I haven't been playing a ton, that's a deck that I'd be playing with right now if I could. Not because I think it's the best deck, but it's like the most fun-looking deck oh, yeah. that I haven't gotten that to play with yet. super sweet. Um, I'm certainly skeptical of it, but it, if that deck were, is good, that is definitely a deck that I would jump on board with very quickly. It's an easy set. And back to your segue of uh, great cards are about to have new cards in the format for one of the first times. Um, Theros Beyond Death, we started getting a lot of spoilers over the last couple of days. And there was a few cards that you were super uh, excited about. One of them got spoiled today. And boy, this card, it's such a good boy. I mean, it's the it's it's the, it's the best boy out there. Uh, I have no idea how to pronounce the name of this. You know how to pronounce it? It's, is yeah, it Kunaros? Kunaros is probably fine. Kunaros? Something, but it's actually kind of Etheros, by the way. Or Aetheros. Yeah, it's, oh, like it's a three-headed dog. Uh, this is like, um, it's a, what, what is it called? Grafdigger's Cage. That's the thing. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a creature card that's one black-white, and it's a 3-3. Three, three, and it's got a lot of keywords and a lot of text on it. So you're looking at 3-3 three, three for three mana. But it's got Vigilance, Menace, Menace and Lifelink. Um, creature cards can't enter the battlefield from graveyards. And players can't cast spells from the graveyards. So like you said, it's... Uh, Grafdigger's Cage, just attached to a 3-3 body for 3, but it's got Vigilance, uh, Menace, and Lifeline. 3-3 three, three is kind of a big point for Pioneer. Like, we've talked about a lot of spells that do 2. We've seen people moving away from the spells that do 3. So this is a, a sweet spot. Because if, you, if you're going to play pay 3 mana for a creature, you need it to survive against a lot of the removal that's going on. So it's a little, it's pretty good against Fatal Push, pretty good against the Shock variants of the format, so it could stay around. But... It's going to do a lot of heavy lifting in the matchups that you need it to do. Yeah, th- three three toughness, like you said, and three mana. Again, d- dodging that fatal push. Uh, that said, the graveyard decks tend to be Golgari, so they tend to have Abrupt Decays in their sideboard, which will help against this card. But this is the kind of card that, like, you could put this in your main deck, right? Like, three three Vigilance Menace Lifelink is not a bad card. I guess... It, the unfortunate thing is that you would want this card in your main deck against aggressive decks, particularly aggressive red decks, and they all tend to have like Skewer the Critics, Lightning Strike, Wizards Lightning, or some combination thereof. So they're like the one deck that's really good at dealing with three toughness creatures. So that might actually doom it from main decks. Um, you know, other than you know its mana cost being kind of prohibitive, we don't really see a lot of uh, Orzov decks, and the one the one we do is the Zombie Rally deck that will certainly not want this card, but. It's, yeah. it's nice to have a graveyard hate card that also like does something else. You know what? When you when you mulligan yeah. aggressively, sometimes like you have you find your hate card, but then your hand just doesn't come together, and your you know dredge opponent just cobbles together some mediocre beatdowns, and that's enough because you've hobbled yourself with these mulligans. But when your hate card comes stapled with this body that looks really good and is gonna you know block off some creatures uh, and buy you some time with lifelink then you're in much better shape. So definitely a, just another powerful you know, tool in the graveyard hate arsenal um, that you know, will certainly see some play from time to time. I don't think it's going to be you know, a world beater, though I will say the graveyard decks in, this, in Pioneer are not super fast, 
So it's not like you generally need to have your graveyard hate online on turn one and turn two. So it costing three mana isn't a super big deal. Like I, I don't expect this card to see play in modern for that reason. Because against the graveyard decks, you need an early and lightning bolt exists in that format. This card just matches up so poorly against bolt. But in Pioneer, you know, the stats are good and the uh, being slow to the battlefield isn't as big of a liability. Yeah, taking a look at it, I'm not sure I see it, but we'll have to see, you know, if it finds its niche in like a sideboard or something like that. Again, I think the casting cost of it is going to be prohibitive. Like you said, there's not a lot of good black white decks. Yeah, I don't really see a home for it right now, but, you know, years, I'm yeah. sure in, in over the next two years, like it'll find a home somewhere. Right, right. There was another card, uh, another couple cards that we we're going to talk about and that you're pretty excited about. Uh, the next one, uh, Satessin Champ. Uh, wh- what got you excited about this one? So much like uh, Kunaros, this is a three mana creature with three toughness, right? So g- good against removal, and it's really important for this card because it's a, it's a you know it's a synergy card. So it's two to green for a one three uh, constellation. So whenever an enchantment enters the battlefield into your control. You put a plus one, plus one counter on Satessin Champion, and you draw a card. So it's like Eidolon of Blossoms that gets big, and it's a little bit cheaper, a little bit better at dodging removal, and it's a, just in a, a redundant effect. You know, I, I think there's a there's a Selesnia, like, Seder card that cantrips off of... Um, off of yeah, it's from M19. Yeah, but it's a 3 mana yeah. 2 2 so it just dies to, you know, Wild Slash, which is really bad. Everything, yeah. This is a card, it's a 1-3, but it also gets big really quickly. You know, once this card gets to 2-4-3-5-4-6, and you've drawn several cards off of it, then it also dominates the battlefield. One of the issues with Constellation decks or, or sort of, um, you know, enchantment-centric decks, what's the name of, of the legacy deck that, what do they call it? Enchantress. Enchantress. Uh, one of the issues <laughs> with these kinds of decks in newer formats is... You know, they're playing pretty expensive cards because there are a ton of good, cheap enchantments. Um, Abundant Growth will probably be a good one in a deck like this, things like that. But you don't get to play Utopia Sprawl or Wild Growth, which are really important aspects of the Legacy version. Uh, And those enchantments usually don't have a huge immediate impact on the battlefield. So getting to grow your, you know, creature into something that actually does contend in combat, as opposed to things like Argothian Enchantress or Enchantress's Presence that don't really get involved in combat... Uh, which are the legacy versions, it is, I think, really important for this kind of deck to exist if it's going to exist. You know, we're going to see some more devotion payoffs. Maybe we end up seeing a devotion constellation kind of deck with Idol and the Blossoms, Satessin Champion, Corsair of Crufix. Uh, I mean, you know, maybe you splash back black for Doom with Giant like I did back in Standard, um, or, or maybe not. A, I don't know. Maybe you go white because there's more, you know, enchantment options. You get some removal. But I think this is card is the kind of card that Enchantress decks needed. I'm not saying it's for sure going to like put those decks on the map, but if, if that's the kind of deck that y- you've been raring to build and hasn't really come together yet, this is the kind of card that should excite you. Yeah, and like it actually might be a good time right now if uh, I haven't looked at the price of it, just thinking of it right now. You know, if, if you can find Eidolon of Blossoms for cheap, just go ahead and get a set. You know, like, you know paying up front you know making the the jump into this if it's good if it's if it's a, a decent strategy uh you might have a chance to you know get in on, under the line and get some stuff for pretty cheap because you're you're not just getting the new enchantment cards you're getting the old set of theros in, in this as well so you're getting kind of like to double down on the strategy and there's been some inklings of stuff like m19 and m20 both had like enchantment matters like little creatures in the green white area so it's 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 been on the fringes, you know what I mean? Like they've been kind of hinting at it 
for a while. And now when you see cards like that, you're like, this just makes sense that we were going back to Theros. We've seen devotion cards and we've seen some enchantment matters cards. So definitely a card to look out for that could be a, a big player in the future. And speaking of enchantment cards that you like, there is another one that we both kind of like that's coming to this one. And this is like, it seems like Black's answer or not answer, but Black's version of history of Benalia and uh, Terramet calls the dead. Yes. I have no idea how to pronounce that Timuret name. is what I, I said. Timuret. In the in the original Theros block, there was a Timuret, the murder king, one of the little Rakdos creature that mm-hmm. threw things. Um, so uh, definitely a character from the plane. But this card is actually what the is the focus for my article this week on Star City Games. So uh, you can check that out. I uh, we're recording on a Monday night, so this will probably episode will probably up Tuesday, and that's when my articles go up. So it should be up by the time you're listening to this. Um, definitely a card that struck me when I read it. Uh, and I will say, like, yes, there's this obvious comparison to History of Penalia, But the key here is that you don't get the 2-2 automatically with Timur Calls the Dead. You, you exile the, or put, you mill the top three cards of your library. And then you can exile a creature or enchantment from your graveyard. And if you do, you get the zombie token. So you have to put some work in to get the zombies. So, th- so this isn't really a standalone threat. You know, in your average aggro deck that plays like 24 creatures, because this is going to sort of replace a creature. So maybe you have 28 because you have four of these two. You know, you're going to hit the the zombie like 80% of the time at 28, something like that, which, you know, is fine. But certainly like, you know, it's not great because you're, you're getting 1.6 two twos instead of two. Uh, that's a, you know, a pretty substantial decrease. But this card also enables the graveyard, you know, you get to mill three twice. So it's a three mana mill six. That's pretty good. We're normally paying two mana to mill five with Grizzly Salvage and Gather the Pack. Um, and we're paying like one mana to mill three with Stitcher Supplier. This is giving you a similar rate, but in a deck that's stocked with creatures, likely giving you some two twos in the meantime. So you're getting some value. And then that third chapter, you're, if you're playing a graveyard deck, you probably have a lot of zombies. And both graveyard decks and Pioneer play a lot of zombies. So you're getting a lot of value out of, off that third chapter as well, and usually scrying towards something big. You know, the, the rally decks, the rally zombie deck really needed another graveyard enabler to use rally the ancestors. This could be that it gets you zombies, which trigger your you know drain effects. Then you have a bunch of zombies on the battlefield because all your other creatures are zombies. You get to you know uh, gain a bunch of life and uh, and scry a bunch and you know dig for your really powerful cards. Um, you know, dig for your rally the ancestors. Maybe you get to rally in response to the trigger and like get a get an even bigger uh, scry and a bigger life game. So definitely a card that uh, I think has some legs. I think it just reads well on rate as long as you have enough creatures and you're using the graveyard. But like history finale is a card that we saw in the sideboard of control decks as this like you know uh, get a, a little bit of aggressive juke um, in standard. This is. This card mm-hmm. is not going to be doing those things. This is a very you know synergy driven card, but in those style of decks, it's basically history of Benalia that also enables synergies. So it's a good rate threat that is also an enabler, and that combination is really really powerful. Normally, we see you know enablers and payoffs, and they're not really good standalone cards. When they are standalone cards, it really increases both your overall power level when things are going well, but it also raises your floor when things aren't going well. You still have some cards that will function reasonably on their own hmm, absolutely you know i, I gotta say this, this is the one the ones that i'm, I'm a little excited about myself uh, i'm not going to talk about it too much because you just like nailed it on the head and i want people to read your article tomorrow but this one definitely seems like a card that could be like a 
you know, build around me or, you know, insert into deck that needed this effect kind of thing that already had cards that like, you know, were built around it. So definitely excited to see where this one goes. I think this one will definitely be one of the players of the format. And this one just looks good. Like, you know, one of those rares that you're going to start seeing pop up is like a four of in a lot of decks. And it's going to kill a lot of people. I'm going to die to this card a lot yeah. if it gets played. And and I don't know like what other zombie cards we're going to see or other graveyard cards. It looks like there's like kind of like, you know, there's escape in this set. So if you're like, if you're milling over escape cards with that card and generating value, you're milling over Colbin familiars that you can recur with your oven. You're milling over gutter bones and all these recursive threats. Like I can see this card in mono black aggro. You're just milling six cards. Like, I, like you have a bunch of creatures. Oh, exile this Knight of the Adam Legion that you killed on turn one because you don't have to exile one of the three that you milled. So if like, you know, so it actually goes well with other graveyard enablers. If you've already stocked your graveyard with some throwaway creature, then you're going to be able to just exile that, keep all the juicy ones that come back. Um, and so, you know, but even a mono black that doesn't really enable its graveyard, they're killing your threats early. You can exile the ones they killed. You know, you mill over your scrappy scratchers and you get to recur them. So you're generating even extra value that way. You know, I don't know what escape cards are going to, you know, see print. I assume there's going to be some good ones that are pushed for constructive level play. You know, uh, honestly, I'm starting to see this and I'm starting to see that, like, this might even start to show up in, in like decks in like standard, like Jun sacrifice. Because you can hit extra, you can hit extra cats into your into your graveyard. You actually sacrifice this enchantment when it hits the third chapter, so it could trigger your mayhem devils, things like that. And so, like maybe we see a deck kind of like that come into uh, Pioneer as well. I mean, those cards are all very powerful and can sit there, and you you can make a deck kind of in there with some of the cards in Pioneer that you don't have in Standard, and make this be like theme number two of your deck. You know, you have this like also this thing going on, and like you said, I'm a big fan of it. If it hits an escape card. That's that's absurd. Like the amount of value that you get from that, and I am super worried about escape being too good. But it doesn't look like too too much that they've like they've gone too far with it yet. But we'll have to see because I, I am worried whenever they do an effect like this. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely abusable. I see some good ones like Woe Strider. It's kind of a cool escape card. I don't think I don't think it's quite there for Pioneer, but maybe because it's just another good sacrifice outlet. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the Tuna Black Three Two. Yeah, enters the battlefield. You can no one goat. Uh, so Brad Nelson, I'm sure he's happy about that. Maybe he, his goat token yeah. will see, see some camera time. Uh, you sacrifice another creature, scry one, and then it has escape three black black and four cards. And when it escapes with two plus one counters, so it becomes a five four uh, when you escape it. So like that's a, a reasonable rate card for like a standard deck. I think things like John sacrifice that deck's a little bit too tight for me. I actually like the the Timur at calls the dead in Rakdos Aristocrats. You know, it makes multiple bodies for priest of uh, forgotten gods. It you know mills over your gutter bones and your calder familiars. Uh, you know your woe strider. If you want to play yes, it, and it can mill over that. Uh, in the list in my article, I'll give you a little preview. Has one copy of God Eternal Bantu, so you can dig for that with the scry and set up those big turns. So like I, I like pairing this card with like you know singleton powerful effects like that. So but you know in Pioneer in the the Sulfi Dredge deck you know go down to one decimator of provinces now you got this card that you know by the time it triggers that third chapter you're going to have the two zombie tokens maybe uh prize amalgam is a zombie stitcher supplier is a zombie you might have three four or five zombies on the battlefield you dig pretty hard for that one decimator a gourmet angler is a zombie too maybe you have the decimator you're digging for the angler maybe you have haunted dead also a zombie and you're digging for that fifth land because you only need four land drops because like you can play turn three uh Temeret calls the dead turn four even hard cast onto dead from your hand, you know, get another zombie on that upkeep. 
you've probably milled over a, you know, a, whatchamacallit, a narc amoeba and maybe a prize amalgam. Now I've got, what is that? Two one ones, three two twos, and a three three, and several zombies dig for that fifth land, you know, and get my my thing down. Or dig for even if you're on four lands, like you have now have enough cards in your graveyard that you could probably cast a cheap angler and then cast decimator from that. So that there's just a lot that 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 card does. That just has so much text on it. When did they start putting so much text on every card now? Like ten years ago, they're like, we're going to really reduce the amount of text that is on cards, especially commons. And now they're just like, you know what? What if we just put 60 words on every single card? Well, I mean, like you started seeing more text on some cards and some sets or whatever, but I've got to believe that like with Throne of Eldraine, I think they started getting paid per word <laughs> or something like that. And like Throne of Eldraine, I mean, there was a novel on every damn card look, in that set. Look at this set. Woe Strider has a million words of text. You know, all the sagas have a million words of text. All the gods There's are no flavor text on like text. any card. You know, yeah, there's like no flavor text on any card in this set. There's just not room. Look, look at all the text on Storm Herald. Three, two, haze, that just bad ability, does a million things. Like they all ent- exit. If they would leave, do something else. Like I, I'm, God, I almost feel like there needs to be section headings to break this text up. Yeah, it's like every 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 deck has like, I mean, I'm sorry, every card has its own thesis with its own like opening opening <laughs> statement. You know, the veteran loops back to the thesis and then it's got its conclusion. Yeah. I mean, I, I could make you know jokes about this for days. Um, though I will say this: I'm pretty excited about this set. I've seen some talk online where some people were talking about, "Oh, here comes another set that's going to be really busted and it's going to feel like Eldraine all over again." And I'm not sure just yet. You know, we don't have to go to like a super long conversation about that. But I, w- I would like it if we toned it down just a tiny bit, and I don't mean a lot. I here's the thing: I'd rather Wizards make some mistakes than never make a mistake. You know, I would like there to be powerful cards. You know, they get printed, you know, because that's important, right? You know, we need, you, we need build arounds. We need decks that are good. It, it sucks if we're all just playing two twos and three threes and attacking each other. You yeah. know, like you want you want to be able to like play the game and have do powerful things. So I'm excited about this set. It looks really cool. Um, the cards look really in depth and like there seems to be incremental advantages to be to be made. Like I really like escape so far as a mechanic. But uh, again, I am a little worried, but we'll see. And the gods are back. Those are always really cool when they make it into constructed. Because when I first saw them, I was like, oh, these look like pretty big commander-ish casual cards. And then we've seen a lot of them do some real heavy lifting and constructed, especially when they're like aggressively costed. So uh, I'm excited about this kind of thing. Yeah. uh, I mean, it's still early. So I'm going to temper all things until we get a lot more cards. Um, I am so far pretty happy with the escape cards I've seen. Because they, they preview now a, a mythic red one that's Ox of Agonos, uh, mm-hmm. which is like when I, at first I saw like Escape Red Red, and I'm like, ooh, this is getting you know too powerful. But it's Exile eight cards, and like you know that, right. that's, a, that's a hefty amount in standard. And then in Pioneer, it's like, well, if I'm exiling eight cards, I might as well be casting Treasure Cruise or you know Bedlam Doubler, yeah. which this card is reminiscent of. So. You know, that, that doesn't seem overly costed. The other ones seem to have pretty you know, reasonable escape costs in terms of the mana. Um, you know, I, I do think the L-Step is quite good, um, especially because it, it really helps you attack down Planeswalkers, the ones that have very high loyalty. So uh, I, I, this card is not one to sleep on, even though it doesn't, like, read super awesome. Um, so I'm so far, I'm pretty happy with what I see. There's a couple, you know, Usually there's a couple things that stand out. So far, it's Timurat Calls the Dead and the Elspeth, I would say, are the two cards that really stand out to me. There's a couple cool cards. I really like um, 
Underworld Breach is a, a kind of a weird one. If you have you seen this one? Yeah, that one's the one. There was a lot of talk about. Is, is this card absolutely busted or is it unplayable? I'm I'm not the person for this card. You know what I mean? I'm gonna die to it a lot if it's very good, but I'm not like the typical storm player. You know what I mean? I'm not the typical person that breaks cards like this. I'm not good at that yeah, kind of you, thing. You play very fair magic. Um, yeah, th- this is colorless red enchantment. Each non-land card in your graveyard has escape. The escape cost is equal to the card's mana cost, plus exile three other cards from your graveyard. In the beginning of the end step, you sacrifice Underworld Breach. So, so you only get it for one turn. It just looks like Yogg's Will. Well, like. the, the thing is, you know, when you're casting spells like Yogg's Will and Path and Flames, oftentimes you're trying to cast five spells or so out of your graveyard, right? But with this card, that means you need 15 other cards to exile. So it's it's the exile cost that really puts a hard cap on how busted of a turn you can have with this. Um, so you really need to exile a lot of cards from your graveyard uh, to make it work. Now, if you can do that, yeah, it's a two mana nearly Ogmos will. Notably, it does not work with Lotus Bloom. Um, that was a, a question from Emma Handy on Twitter because it references mana cost and not converted mana cost. The, uh, the zero mana... Um, or no, zero save C, uh, suspend cards that don't have a mana cost, you know, can't be escaped. Uh, so that that's good. I think with, uh, you know, with Lotus Bloom, it might have been might have gotten out of hand because at that point, like, uh, you can just, you know, loop Lotus Bloom a couple times, exile three cards at a clip and just use it as a huge ritual that also generates storm. Yeah, it's already making my head hurt. Like, I can't but, keep up. That's <laughs> the big thing. I think if it said CMC, it would be probably way too good. So they, they wisely figured that yeah. out or at least stumbled into it. I don't know. Uh, but this is... Hard to tell. This is the, like, you know, I, I want to break this card. If you're the person that, like, wants wants to find a cool build around and uh, and see if what they can do with it, this this is the card for you. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm interested to see what it can do because I, I like kooky magic. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So for everybody who uh, is a follower of the podcast, maybe this is the first time you've listened to it. You might not have heard us talk about this, but we do have a discord. It's a pretty active community, but every week the, um, the, the, the patrons that are involved in our discord, they get to ask questions that we'll talk about on air. Uh, we kind of exhausted, I think our patrons last week with the, the mailbag episode, I think we answered something like 70 questions from them. So we only got one this week. But it's a sweet one and it's a good it's a good moment for it's a good learning opportunity for people. I'm gonna go ahead and read this. This is from uh, Brent Wagner, our, our editor. I got dinged at OKC for correct uh, for correcting the game state of a game next to me when my game completed without asking for a judge to fix it. The interaction was Ugin the Spirit Dragons uh, minus X cards went to the graveyard instead of exile. I just said it to both players about two turns later and they quickly corrected it. Should I just say pause the game? I need to call a judge similarly. If I am not sure that the game state is incorrect, should I call a judge anyway? Ross, I'm gonna let you take this one. Yeah, uh, th- this is a. It's gonna. Eh, it's sort of in depth. Um, so the the proper way to try do to this, condense it. Try to yeah. condense it. <laughs> the, the proper way to do this, if you're at just a regular competitive level event, is to uh, not say anything about the problem that you think you've seen, uh, even if you're 100 percent sure that you know you're right. Uh, because you don't want to give any like information to uh, to the players that they might not have, or uh, you don't want to you know unfairly influence the game. So that in the uh, you know whatever judge documents they have, your role as a spectator is to ask them to stop. Uh, they don't actually have to listen to you, but 
in my experience, they usually do, <laughs> and call a judge and tell the judge, and then the judge will handle it from there. Uh, so if you want to do everything super by the book, that's what you should be doing. Even if you're not entirely sure, it's perfectly fine to call the judge. They'll get their extension. Sometimes they get a little salty at you, especially if you're wrong, which I have been. Uh, but I, I wouldn't be too worried about that. You know, it, it's it's much more important for you to correct something that correct a mistake than you know waste a couple minutes of somebody's time, right? Uh, and and if you are wrong, it, it won't take that long to realize it. Uh, so that that's the, how you should do it. Now I will say, if I am watching a match where I know the players and I'm like, you know, I've been watching it pretty intently and I absolutely know a mistake has been made. I sometimes will not, you know, call over the judge and I'll point it out to them. But I only do that if I know them because I, if, you know, if it's somebody you don't know, it's kind of presumptuous and, you know, they can legitimately get mad at you uh, for interrupting their game. So, uh, and, and the other thing, uh, you know, if there are players you don't know, like there's always the possibility that one of them is being a little dishonest. You know, if, if those Ugin cards, if one of the, if one player like wanted them to go to the graveyard and like that person is cheating and you just sort of point it out to them, it gives them the opportunity to sort of just weasel out of it. If you call over a judge, they might notice something because judges are trained, you know, to, to do this. Uh, they might notice something that you don't and, and that might trigger an investigation and it might, you know, uh, uh, escalate from there. So, uh, you know, when in doubt, involve the judge. Uh, oftentimes it, it's... If there's a judge standing there, you know, if, if you're watching a match late in the clock, there's usually a judge around. You can just flag them down immediately and not even really stop the match uh, unless it's something really important. But the, the the real by the book way of doing it at a competitive level is to stop and then uh, or ask them to stop and then call a judge. That, that does change if you're playing at professional level. Uh, so if you're at a pro tour uh, or I think GP day twos are our professional level. I think at that, as far as I know, and I haven't looked in years, this might have changed. But the last I knew, uh, at a professional level, as a spectator, you are not allowed to ask them to stop. All you can do is go find a judge and tell them, and then they'll they'll do whatever they can do, which sometimes can be annoying because like you'll notice a mistake, and then you know, by the time a judge comes over, it's too late for them to rewind. Uh, but that's how they do it. You know, at, at that level, they don't want you, you as a spectator, you know, interrupting them too much. So. That, that's how they did it for years. I don't know if that has changed recently. Uh, if you're unsure, I would talk to a local judge or whatever. Um, but at a competitive level, which is most of what you're playing, you know, everything between F&M and the Pro Tour, um, just ask them to stop, call a judge, let the judge handle it. They know what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. That's what they're there for. Like, you know what I mean? Make, make them earn their pay, you know? Give, give them some work, but... Uh, very good question, a uh, very good teaching moment because honestly, like they, they say this a lot and I feel like, you know, it cannot be said enough. If you're unsure of something, even if it's in a game that you're not in, River, go talk to a judge. You know, like they're there to help you. It keeps you from getting yourself in trouble, you know, and it can, and it can help keep other people out of trouble as well. So always, always involve a judge if you're just unsure of something. Yeah, I think uh, there's still this reputation of competitive magic as the way it used to be in the 2000s when it was like super cutthroat and the penalties were a lot more severe. Uh, and in areas like that, it was kind of nerve wracking to call a judge because even if you were well-meaning, if you made a significant mistake, like you could get game lost for it, something else, uh, or maybe even worse. Uh, and especially if you sort of didn't know how exactly how the rules worked and weren't super confident, maybe you're not super confident about an interaction and you say the wrong thing, you know, it could escalate from there. So there was some apprehension 
for a lot of players calling a judge. And I think that's carried over through the years, even as things have gotten a lot more lax. Um, and, you know, there have been significant changes in the last decade where the, you know, the judges have, have come together and said, like, we're being a little bit too harsh. This is, you know, primarily, you know, the, the, we're not coming down on the players that these, poli- these harsh policies are meant to come down on because those are the people that know how to get around them. And the people they are coming down on are well-meaning, but just, you know, unaware and experienced. And so because of that, we're going to adjust our policy. We're going to become a lot more lenient. They end up, you know, having a little bit more leeway in terms of downgrading if they realize that, you know, you were well-meaning, but you just made an honest mistake. Um, so, you know, these days it is always beneficial to be calling judges for things like, you know, basically the only thing that like you can be well-meaning about and still get a significant penalty is collusion where you just offer to like pay somebody to, for a, a match result. That's like the only thing that you can, you know, still get really dinged on that just off the top of my head, maybe there's other things, but you really should be calling judges a lot. Uh, I think most of the time, like people don't communicate well and that leads to problems and calling a judge is the best way to fix that. Uh, though communicating, communicating clearly is also good, but talking to judges, like, you know, that, that was something that I learned very quickly in my career. Like I lost a judge call at my very first tournament in like round four. And, you know, after that happened and I can't remember what it was about, but after that happened, I was like, Oh, so I'm just going to learn all of the rules. So this never happens to me again. I didn't lose a judge call for like 10 more years. <laughs> I just, I, I just wasn't going to happen. So, um, you know, obviously like you should do what you can to be a little bit more familiar with the rules. Uh, at this point, like it's hard. There's a lot of really complicated cards. The the rulings aren't um, as aren't intuitive a lot of the time. Uh, so the the best thing you can be doing is just calling judges. They really are there to help. They're not lying to you. Things are not nearly as cutthroat as they used to be. Uh, the, the judges are your friend. Hey Ross. Yeah. I I just ran out of wine. I ran out of wine a while ago, Tannen. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good point to kind of call it here. Uh, I think we, we covered enough. Uh, I'm excited for next week's episode because I do think it'll be another spot where uh, we don't have tons and tons and tons of pioneer stuff to talk about. You know, we'll, we'll have a we'll have a tournament that's going on this weekend, but it's triple modern. Um, but we'll probably have a lot of the next set previewed by then. I think we're going to have probably a double, triple the cards, if not more. So I'm super excited to see what the new cards are and things that can be kind of used in the pioneer. We might talk about some more of the spoilers that were already out and things that you know just tickle or fancy. For the next one. So I'm super excited about that with the next one. So if you're listening at home and you see anything, you know, on the spoiler that you're like, man, I really like this or really like that idea. You can tweet at our Twitter and let us know. And we'll talk about it on the show. If you want to know what the Twitter is, that is at cast pioneer. Make sure you give it a follow. If you haven't, if you're on the, the, the website, as the kids call it, uh, we love hearing from all y'all in there. We do uh, retweet deck list quite a bit and, you know, make some, some funny memes and stuff on there too, as well. Um, one of us is almost always on doing something. So lots of cool stuff going on the Twitter, super active there. Um, in the, uh, the discord, the aforementioned discord, you can find a link on our Twitter to the discord in there. If you, if you don't have access to Twitter, do you want the, uh, the discord link, either message me on Facebook or, you know, Ross, one of us in some way, shape or form, and we'll get you a link to it, but, uh, make sure you check it out. Um, inside that discord, we do have a special channel that's about to get, uh, pretty important going forward in the next couple of weeks because there's about to be a lot of magic tournaments going on next year and Ross is going to be going to all of the Open since he's representing Team BCW. I actually am picking one in season one for my sister's wedding, so don't lie. Okay, all. Uh, approximately all the Opens. So uh, 
But anytime an event like that is going on, Ross and I will be posting the deck list that we would be playing at the event or are playing at the event as soon as we possibly can. And that'll be in the Patreon channel. Um, right now we have a two and a five dollar tier. There's more coming in the future with some cool little goodies that are going to be attached to them. But uh, make sure you check that out. And if you can, uh, yeah, you know, send us a few bucks. We got to pay Brent somehow to make us sound good or better than we sound. I don't know if there's any way to make us sound good, Ross, honestly, but we'll have to see. I don't know. So need you can definitely check that out. I don't need any help. Yeah, you, yeah. As you echo across the room, Ross is. What comes out of my mouth is fine. What ends up on the recording is another. Okay, point. sure. So there's. Sure, I'll, I'll buy that. Me personally, I don't need any help. The technology, that's the problem. So that's the limit. Okay. We're limited only as far as technology can carry you. I get it. I get it. But if you're interested in helping us out and becoming one of our patrons, you can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash pioneer cast. Uh, it's very easy to find it in Google too. If you're looking for that kind of thing as well, we appreciate everybody that's been supporting us so far. Y'all mean so much to us. Y'all have been great in helping support us and keeping the show going because uh, Ross and I really enjoy doing this for you guys and gals and, and uh, people every week. So really appreciate all the help. Um, y'all are awesome. I can't wait until next week uh, to talk some more of these spoilers. Are you excited about the spoilers next week, Ross? I don't usually get too excited during preview season. Um, you know, certain cards come up. God, you're such a humbug. I, I really am. I, I've been doing this for a long time, Tannen. You know, and recently, like you act like I haven't been playing Magic. You act like I don't play Magic. <laughs> recently, they do. They release so many cards. There's like six sets a year, True. so we just do it so often. You know, I, I wait for the individual cards. It's not the season itself that I get super excited about. It's like, okay, what are the mm-hmm. two, three, four really super cool cards in this set that I really want to play with? So far, we've got at least one. I really like Timurit Calls the Dead. Um, and, and we'll see which other ones, you know, come out. Hopefully, we get at least one more sure. in that group over the next week. Uh, but we, we should get some good ones. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the previous season will start in earnest on the second, I assume. Yeah, well, I'm super excited for next week and to see the uh, the cards. I'll drag Ross's sorry ass kicking and screaming into the next episode and try to get him hyped and excited about it. I'm going to message you like a billion things a day about these cards, and hopefully you'll get excited about one or two of them so we can talk about it on the show. That's going to make me less excited. It's just going to make me irritable and grouchy. Yeah, but then like you, you might you might you'll answer me about one or two of them to make it stop, and then there we go. I've got I've got the creative juices going. So I guess. I, I'm, I'm skeptical of this plan, but everybody make sure every single time you get an idea to tag Ross with your idea. If someone wanted to tag you Ross and talk to you on Twitter, where would they do it? I am at the tan and grace. That's T H E. Oh God. <laughs> Please, uh, don't. Please don't. T H E T A N N O N G R A C E. So you, you can, Tag that handle, and I will be sure to respond to every single person at length. There will be a multiple tweet thread in reply to every single tweet that tags me at that uh, at that handle. Ross, I, I just went to that Twitter, and I have a few questions. You've lost a lot of followers, but <laughs> have you been like? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, have you been working out? <laughs> you look great. Hairline's <laughs> coming back. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, don't be. Hey, I'm, I'm losing a little bit of it. Let's not. Let's not get too far. Okay, you you got a while to catch up. True, very true, and I'm hoping to keep it that way. So, yeah. anyway, if someone did actually want to fo- find you on Twitter and talk to you on Twitter, where would they go? I am at Ross Hunneds. That's R O S S H U N N E D S, and I do try to respond to most people that come at me. Um, 
So the best place to ask me questions is there. Uh, I also write an article weekly for Star City Games. Those go up on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, and I appreciate anyone who reads those. Uh, and then I'm also the co-host of Versus Live with Corey Baumeister. We are on Tuesdays, 1 to 4 Eastern. We will not be on this Tuesday, which is New Year's Eve. We'll be coming back from our holiday hiatus on the 2nd, so this coming Thursday. Uh, we're going to be playing some Modern for y'all in advance of the Team Modern Open in Columbus. So be sure to check that out. And we just, you know, have fun playing Magic, whatever formats are relevant, uh, whatever decks we think are cool or relevant to tournaments coming up. Uh, if you can catch us live, we're at twitch.tv slash starcitygames, same channel you go to to watch open coverage. And we do take questions live from the audience when uh, we're going. So it's a really fun time. We like to, you know, interact with the chat as much as, as possible, play some fun magic, um, and uh, if you are unable to catch us live because you work or whatever, uh, the Tuesday shows go up on the Star City Games YouTube channel uh, the following Friday. Thursday shows go up the following Monday. So you can catch the recorded episodes there and comment there as well. But we do look through those from time to time as well. Yeah, if you wanted to find me, you could do the aforementioned Twitter handle that Ross was spelling out at the Tan and Grace. Uh, I tweet a lot about... Magic, a lot about sports right now with, uh, you know, Louisiana football being very, very good. And then when baseball season starts, it's going to get real annoying, too. But other than that, a lot of magic stuff, a lot of retweets of cool stuff in there. Pretty active on there. So uh, decent follow, decent follow, like maybe average, like tiny, tiny bit above. I don't know. It just depends on what you're into. But decent was a good description. You could have stopped there. Yeah, decent. There we go. Decent, decent follow. All right. Decent. But anyway. Uh, thanks again for listening to this episode. We had a lot of fun bringing it to you. And we'll see you all next week.